The first reading this morning <coughs> is from Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 15, and you can find it on page 1206 of the Church Bibles. Page 1206. Worship in the earthly tabernacle. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. <clears throat> this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Now we come to the blood of Christ. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, 
that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Our second reading continues at Hebrews 10, uh, verse 19, on page 1208. Uh, Hebrews 10, uh, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he uh, who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on uh, towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those early days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who believe and are saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Charmian. Thank you, Nick. Please do keep that passage open before you. And um, Charles was preaching last week about the difference between spiritual milk and meat. And let me say, this passage is meat. 
and it may seem at times impenetrable, but I am convinced that it's going to feed us and nourish us this morning, but we'll need God's help. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have made us in your image, and in our sin, we sometimes try and make you in ours. Forgive us, and help us to see you aright in these pages of Hebrews, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Confidence. Our whole passage is about that one word. Confidence. In fact, the whole of Hebrews 7, 8, 9, 10 is about confidence. Have a look down at chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, since we have confidence. Have a look again at uh, verse 35 of chapter 10. So do not throw away your confidence. The writer is all about confidence in these chapters. And so before we dive into this meaty passage, I want to make a few preliminary remarks about the nature of confidence. You'll see if you're a note taker on the back of the green sheets, uh, the points are there. And I've got three preliminary observations about confidence. Are you ready for them? The first is this. Confidence has to have an object. It has to have an object. Now, our culture is increasingly treating confidence as a virtue in and of itself. We say that, don't we? He's a very confident person, or she is. But confident in what? Confident in whom? And if you've watched the um, X Factor or Britain's Got Talent, you'll have seen that um, very painful scenario played out again and again where the contestant is literally about to go out there and face the music and their parents are saying, just be confident, darling. And they could be forgiven for thinking, be confident in what? Indeed, as the music plays, we see they had no reason to be confident at all. Confidence needs to have an object. Secondly, confidence should be directly related to the ability of its object to support us. And therefore, confidence is only ever as helpful as its object is strong. Makes sense, doesn't it? It is a foolish thing to have confidence in a weak thing. It is a wise thing to have confidence in a strong thing. Now, increasingly, these X-Factor singers, they have confidence in themselves, which it has to be said is unwise in many cases. Let's take a different example. Imagine the Thames freezes over, very hard frost one winter. And, um, and I say to you, do you have confidence in that ice to hold weight? Well, what would you do to answer that question? I presume you wouldn't answer from your bedroom and say, uh, yeah. I presume you'd have a look at the thickness of that ice, the object of your confidence, and say yes or maybe no. Third little observation about confidence is this. The test of confidence is cost. The test of confidence is cost. In other words, the more that is at stake for us, the greater the test of our confidence. So if we go back to that ice scenario... How do I test your confidence in the thickness of that ice? 
Well, won't I place increasingly valuable things to you on that ice and see how you respond? How confident are you the ice is strong? You might say, yes, very. Would you mind if I placed your widescreen television on it? Would you mind if I placed your, uh, your very valuable dog on it? Your child on it? Your house safe on it? Would you mind if I placed you on it? And the mark of the confident person in that awkward conversation with the curate is that they keep on nodding. They keep saying, yeah, I don't know, I'm very confident in this ice, because cost is a test of confidence. We'll come back to all of those things. But can I ask you, how confident are you this morning in Christ? That's my question. That's the writer's question in this passage. How confident are we in Christ? Now, if you're a Christian this morning, we are not to be self-confident people. We have more reason than any other people not to be. We're sinners. But we are called to be Christians, to be Christ-confident people. How confident are you, am I, in Christ this morning? Can we really trust him? He talks a good game, doesn't he, this guy Christ? He promises that this world here is not all that there is. That it's an hors d'oeuvre gone wrong before the main course of eternity. That it's a misprinted introduction in a book before the main chapters of eternity come. He promises that this world is not as good as the new creation to come. He promises that death is not a terminus but a connecting stop at which every human being will go one of two ways. As Charles was saying recently, he promises that death is a comma, not a full stop. He's changed the grammar of death. That death is just a brief pause before we're thrown into a new creation in Christ, if we're a Christian, where there is nothing ugly, nothing sad, Nothing tear-duct exercising and only lasting undiluted joy. He promises those things. He talks a good talk. But can we have confidence in him? And can I say this morning, if you sometimes struggle to have confidence in Christ, believe you me, I do too. And I'm wearing a dog collar. Now, the answer to our lack of confidence is here in Hebrews 7, 8, and 9, and I want us to look at it. We're going to look at Christ's credentials. Now, the whole passage uses the language, maybe unfamiliar to us, of the new creation, this paradise, as being the most holy place, or the tabernacle. Do you you see that? Chapter 8, verse 2, the true tabernacle. Chapter 9, verse 11, the greater and perfect tabernacle. Chapter 10, verse 19, the most holy place. And the question is, who can take us there to be with God? Can we be confident Jesus can do that? So we're going to look at Christ's credentials. Can his walk match his talk? Are you with me? Now, it seems the original readers of this letter to the Hebrews were Jews who'd been converted to Christianity. And they were finding it quite hard to leave their beloved festivals and sacrificial systems and move on to this Christ guy. They found that a hard thing to do. 
And so the writer of the Hebrews does a sort of spot the difference thing. Did you ever do that as a child or do you do that with your children? Spot the difference. He holds up two pictures at the same time. He says, here's a picture of the Old Testament, Old Covenant sacrificial system. Look at it. Now, here's a picture of what Christ has brought. Can you spot the difference, he says again and again. Can you see that Christ brings something better? Or to take a different illustration, he's showing that these readers were outdated in the software they were using. It's as if they were trying to send emails with their typewriter. And he's saying, no, 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 a MacBook Pro has been invented. There's a guy called Steve Jobs. He's got some great stuff. You're outdated. He's saying the Old Testament sacrificial system has been updated with hardware that goes by the name of Christ. You should really look at him. It's superior. It's really much better. He is. So it turns out Christ has got quite a CV. Should we just dip into it? Firstly, chapter 7, we didn't have it read. There's too much to read. But he's the descendant of this chap with a great name, Melchizedek. May I recommend that to you if you're considering a child's name? (laughs) And that's a big deal. Chapter 7, verse 2, it means he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Verse 3, it means he has no birthday, he's the uncreated one, and he has no death day, he's the eternal one. Verse 16, he's the possessor of an indestructible life, teflon-coated, death cannot touch him. Verse 26, he is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted, way above the heavens. Okay, we say, with his CV coming across our desk, he's impressive. But how does that help us with our confidence question? How can he get me to heaven, into the most holy place? How can I trust him? Well, because he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, he can go into bat for us. And he's pretty good at doing that. He's good at the crease with God the Father. Let's have a look at that. Chapter 9, verse 7. Would you look at that? Let's have a little read of it. Do you see, under the old covenant, only one person was allowed to go into this most holy place and only once a year, and he was the the, the high priest. And whenever he went into the most holy place, it it was a scene of an abattoir. He had to sprinkle the blood of lambs and goats because sin means we're guilty before God and guilty means we have to be punished before God. And punishment for sin is death, the pouring out of blood. So the only way a human being could come into God's presence was by that sin, that guilt being transferred onto the head of a goat or a lamb and them being killed and not us. That's how it worked. But you see, Jesus spills his own blood. And his own blood is not animal blood. It's not a goat or a lamb. It's not even human blood. If we were to analyze his blood type, it would say divine And his blood, therefore, can cover our sin in a way that the goat and sheep could never do. In Australia, they really struggle with bushfires, I'm told. It's not something we struggle with in the UK. It's far too wet. But I'm told the way to make ourselves safe in a bushfire, I pass this on to you if it's ever relevant, 
is to walk into a field of crops and burn a circle around you. So it's already burnt. And the reason that is the safest thing to do is that when the fire comes, it's got nothing more to burn when it gets to you. Because fire can only burn crops once. It can only scorch the earth once. And you see, our Heavenly Father can only punish sin once in the sinner. The wonderful thing about Jesus shedding his blood for us is that he has taken that punishment for us. He has been burnt with the Father's anger in our stead. We can be surrounded with Christ and untouched with the Father's wrath. We can walk into the Holy of Holies. That's the claim of Hebrews. It's a wonderful thing. Take a different picture, chapter 9, verse 14. Those of you who wash clothes, Persil apparently cleans the tougher stains, if you're to believe the adverts. Christ's blood cleans the toughest stains. I've never cleaned with blood myself. I don't recommend it. But in a spiritual sense, he cleans the stains even in the depths of our consciences the things which we don't talk to other people about while holding a cup of coffee, deep into the labyrinth of the darkness of our souls, and he cleans even there, more than personal. His blood is very powerful indeed. Indeed, chapter 9, verse 26, he's abolished sin. So that rather like the abolition of slavery... He has abolished this whole institution of sin so that those once under its sway are no longer affected by it. It's a complete change. He's done it. So I want to say, Christian friend, if you're here this morning as a Christian, can you be confident in Christ? Yes, is the answer. He's done all that we need to step into the Holy of Holies, to walk into that paradise, the new creation, whenever our death day comes. Can you be confident in him? Yes, there is no guilt. It's a wonderful thing. So forget our TV, forget the dog, forget the house safe or your child. We can roll the whole weight of our eternity onto Christ and he will support us. The Christ ice is thick, if I can put it that way. And so we can keep on nodding. Are you confident in Christ? Yes, yes, I am. And so if we're confident, there are some outcomes, which the whole of chapter 10 is about. We're going to look at a few of them. Two candid commands for us. And I warn you, they are candid, particularly the second. Firstly, a candid command to the weary. To the weary. Chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Now, this one is for those of us who are perhaps tempted to give up. Who've been around the block a few times. Who've been a Christian for a long time, perhaps. Maybe you've been here at St. Michael's Chester Square and the years have rolled on. And you've seen people come and go, but you're still here. You've endured your fair share of over-enthusiastic curates. And you're a bit battle-weary. This is a candid command for you. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. 
Now, there is such a thing as right guilt to fear, to feel. It's guilt that hasn't been forgiven, guilt that hasn't been confessed, guilt that hasn't been repented from. And that sort of guilt should needle us. It should really stop us sleeping. It should stop us taking communion. But there is such a guilt as phantom guilt, which we feel but that is not real. Guilt that has been confessed and forgiven and repented from. And that kind of guilt should not bug us at all. We should take communion freely. So if you're letting something in your life, your history, make you feel guilty that's preventing you from drawing near to God, I want you to hold that thing before your mind. Let it dance before you, if you will, and listen to what I'm going to say from these verses. I want to say, friend, your guilty conscience has been cleansed. It's been washed with pure water. It's been sprinkled with Christ's blood. I want to say he's dealt with it. Hold on to that fact by faith. So draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance. Take communion this morning. A second word to the weary, verse 24, if you'll look down. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Honestly, isn't it very wearisome being here every week, here at St. Michael's? Being the only one, seemingly, who stays in London during the weekend as the rest of London's population get in their cars and drive towards that utopia commonly called the country. Isn't it wearisome? Maybe you've come here this morning and you don't even feel like talking to people and yet someone sat next to you. You meant to keep that seat free. The sermon's not even that good this morning. Why did I bother coming? And you even had to buy your own coffee from Baker and Spice. It wasn't ready when you came in. And the author of Hebrews says no. He says stop looking at your coffee and at your belly button. Stop navel-gazing and look up. He says, can you see the day approaching, capital D, day? Can you see the day of Jesus' return when he'll open the judgment books in his glory, when he'll take us to be with him in the new creation? Can you see it coming? It's one day closer than it was yesterday. In fact, it's a whole week closer than the last time I saw you at church. It's coming. And he says, I need you to be here. You don't know what an encouragement you are to me when you come. And when we exchange words over coffee, I love that you're here because I'm going to be here next week. Will you be? We need one another. Candid commands to the weary. A candid command to the complacent. Chapter 10, verse 26 to 31. And I must warn you, this is candid. Verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth... No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire. If we've been warned about a habit, behavioral or thought, that is sinful for a Christian, from the pulpit, from anywhere else, and we persist in that habit, then Jesus can offer us no comfort. 
One of the things which I think is the very definition of foolishness in London is when I see cyclists with a, with a helmet on their handlebars. Have you seen that? That is ridiculous. They've got the thing that could save their lives, but they're not availing themselves of it. I feel like stopping them at the traffic lights and say, what do you think is going to happen when you fall off? Is that going to jump onto your head? No. You see, the helmet cannot help you unless you wear it. And when we receive Jesus' forgiveness, we have to wear it. And wearing Jesus' forgiveness looks like a changed life. Always, always, always. So a mark of being forgiven is godliness. Well, I'm not perfect, neither are you. But generally speaking, a a, a redeemed life, a, a renovated life, slowly. We're wearing the helmet of Christ so that when we fall, we'll be safe. He goes on, if someone rejecting the law of Moses, Old Testament law, he was killed. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has, and then he proceeds to tell us what we're doing when we sin? It's a terrible image. Who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? The image, I think, is this. It's of the Lord Jesus Christ as our best friend who sticks closer than a brother, standing between us and the chasm of hell. And he stands there and he says, friend, do not come this way. This way lies emptiness and eternal pain. Do not come this way. I love you enough to tell you that. I love you enough to die here. He's on his cross between us and the chasm. And if you or I say, but what if I love my sin too much to take your advice, Jesus? What if I want to go that way? Do you know what he replies? He says, over my dead body. He says, over my dead body. And do you know, there are some people who profess to be Christians who do just that. Who walk towards hell and trample Christ's warnings, dismiss them, prefer liberal theology who trample his person and all he's achieved on the cross on their way to destruction. And Jesus says, don't do that. Please don't do that. Don't trample me underfoot. So it's a candid command to the complacent. Charles mentioned uh, last week, is it possible to fall away as a Christian? He had some very helpful answers. I think in short the answer is don't. Just don't try it. Finally, costly confidence. Chapter 10, verse 32 to 39. I'm going to read from verse 32, a few few verses. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. I want you to imagine the scene. It's as if the writer to the Hebrews sits on the sofa next to the Hebrew Christians and he he pulls a photo album off, off, off the shelf. And this is not a photo album labeled Wedding or holiday snaps, it's one labeled suffering. And imagine the conversation as they flick through the pages. Oh, here's here's the one where you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. 
for being Christians who believe Jesus was the only way. He turns the page. Oh yes, the, the time you stood up for and next to other Christians who were imprisoned for their outmoded stand on sexual ethics. Wow, I'd almost forgotten this one as he turns the page where those guys actually confiscated your property in an example of institutionalized persecution because you went to church. Oh, look, in that photo, you're even smiling. You had joy even as they took your TV out the front door. Now, that's quite a photo album, isn't it? And what he's doing is a cost-benefit analysis of the Christian life by means of looking back to a previous season in their lives. And the question is, how did they have joy in the midst of that kind of suffering? After all, no one in their right minds puts a smiley face emoticon next to the words suffering, persecution, and confiscation of property, unless they're mad, right? So what's the secret to their joy in their suffering? And the secret is this. It's that word confidence. It's confidence. Verse 35, so do not throw it away, your confidence. The test of confidence is cost. If I'm really confident in the ice, then you can put whatever you like on it. I'll keep nodding and smiling. I'll stand on it. And these Christians were 100% rock-solid, sky-high confident that Jesus could take them through to the new creation. So they were saying, what's the worst that could happen? Imprison me. Imprison my friend. Insult me. Take my TV. The ice is going to hold me. The Christ ice is strong. So they could have joy and smile in the photos of their suffering. Do you see? And that is true for all of us. I just, as I close, want to run through a few examples for us to take hold of. We can talk with our friends and our colleagues and our neighbors freely about Christ because we're confident in Christ, because he has accepted us. I don't mind whether others accept me or not. We won't worry if we think we're overweight or plain or short or spotty or we don't like what we see in the mirror because Christ has accepted us. We're we're confident in him. If we're confident in Christ, the idea of perhaps never getting married or not being able to have our own children, it'll be sad, but it won't be life-changingly sad because Christ is going to marry us on the last day. He's our groom. He's accepted us. We can be confident that Christ gives us freedom to give our money away freely to the church. It seems like foolishness, but he's got us safe, the new creation around the corner. He's accepted us. Heck, if we're confident in Christ, people can imprison us and insult us and take our property. Confidence in Christ is life-changing. I just want to close with the words of verse 37. We need to hear this. In just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Friends, I want to close by saying it's just a little while now. It's just a little while before Jesus returns. It could be today. There's that child's question, how long? Are we nearly there yet? Yes. Yes. Yes, we are. Just a little while. Will we look up? Can you see the day approaching? It's worth persevering with our faith. Shall we pray?
Heavenly Father, where we feel weak, strengthen us. Where we feel ill-equipped, would you equip us? Where we feel underconfident in you, would you remind us that Christ is strong? He can support our weight, the weight of our eternity. Let us not throw away our confidence. Help us with that, Lord. Amen.